Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and next to me here in the studio is my friend Niklas Savos. How are you doing today? I'm really great today uh, and feel really excited to speak with uh, a guest that has really a broad knowledge and experience in the industry. Yeah, it's really a fascinating person, Avner Mandelman, a writer, former rocket scientist and also a former hedge fund manager. And we would like to give uh, credit for the idea of inviting Avner to the show. Uh, it is our listener, Victor Westman, who is a big fan of Mandelman's work and his epic book, The Sleuth Investor, which was published uh, already in 2007 by McGraw-Hill. And why have we chosen this book? I think the main reason that we chose this book is that it's highly undervalued in the investment community. Uh, we talked to Bethany McLean in episode 12, who is an investigative journalist, and we discussed how similar her job is to being an investor. And to sleuth is actually to be a detective and the main role of investors and business analysts is to understand the inner workings of businesses. Uh, Avner Mandelman, the author of the book, explains how it's difficult to find an edge in markets just by sitting at a desk reading what everyone else is reading. And that's something I'm really sympathetic to. Uh, I think uh, it's hard to find an informational edge in today's markets and you need to do something different. So he recommends talking to employees, customers and suppliers, and he thinks finding physical evidence is key for outperformance. Has the book changed your behavior in some ways? Yeah, it actually has. I mean, it felt like I, I got a kick in the in the butt. <laughs> uh, so I, I started to, um, I mean, check my LinkedIn and to find uh, people that are in my network and uh, arrange some meetings to, to, uh, to discuss a few subjects. And yeah, I think this really really be the start on that and how about you Eddie? Yeah I haven't done as much sleuthing as you it's been the, at the end of the earning season and I had COVID but um, and I did uh, I know about the book since before uh, Victor Westman uh, has inspired me to uh, to learn some key lessons from it before and when I worked as an equity analyst I I tried to do some sleuthing calling companies and so on and suppliers and different uh, competitors but it's a it's a tough job it's a time-consuming job uh, but it's also really really exciting because you get so if you can get information that is not uh, available for everyone it uh, gives you an edge indeed and it's very different to uh, all the theories that uh, i have learned in business school so i really like the book and uh, some might think that it's not legal or ethical to do all this stuff, uh, sniff around the companies and customers and suppliers. But uh, in the book, Mandelman is very well explaining how this can be accomplished. And he's also giving uh, lots of warnings and like thinking about people's privacy and not taking advantage of such things. So I really recommend everyone to read this book. And uh, yeah, I, I've also been listening actually to The Snowball recently. And um, in that book, uh, it's funny because then they bring up how Warren Buffett has been using a sleuth himself uh, called Henry Brunt to check out if American Express's brand has been damaged during that uh, salad oil scandal in 1962 that we have talked about on the podcast a couple of times before. And because uh, some might say that Warren has never been using that kind of uh, information, he's just been sitting and reading, but actually he was doing that uh, back in the days. How does the sleuth investor fit with the quality rating here at Red Eye? So the book uh, is segmented into three areas, um, and those are people, product, and plant. And uh, in Red Eyes rating, people are also first and, and foremost. And uh, I think in general, 
the, the book helps you answer all the questions in the Red Eye Quality Rating, or at least many of them. Uh, so, I mean, you, you can't answer some of the questions without reaching out to people who know the the inner workings of the business. And, and that's, uh, it's, it's really helpful. Um, and uh, I think in general, it's a very hands-on book about what to do and what to avoid. Uh, one benefit of sleuthing is that you get a better sense of, for example, the complexity of a product and more easily can understand if it's within your circle of competence or not. We are truly proud to have the author of The Sleuth Investor on the show. Here comes our conversation with Avner Mandelman. Hello, Avner, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Where are you? I am in Toronto, Canada, on the 21st floor of a penthouse condo overlooking the city. Can you start by telling our listeners a bit about yourself? Well, I was born in Israel many years ago, and I served in the Israeli army in the, in the Six Days War, 67. And I took a degree in aeronautical engineering, then went to France, walked there and to Canada, then went to the U.S. and took an uh, MBA degree in Stanford Business School, went to the market and was working in the market many years and took a, a vacation and took a degree in creative writing and master in English. Came back, started some hedge funds, helped turn around some companies. Uh, with a partner, we started a robo-advisor sold it to a Canadian financial behemoth. And since then, I'm semi-retired, reading and writing and trading and investing and cooking occasionally. That sounds nice. And uh, who, who are your heroes in, in life and in, in investing? Well, they are, they are some, some of them are conventional, some less than conventional. Um, I would say uh, Richard Farley, who wrote a book, Taming the Lion. He was an Australian guy who was born in the outback and had a pretty rough childhood, and he managed to get up to run some of the best investment teams in, uh, in Australia. He wrote a book, as I said, Tammy the Lion. It's written in a very bland way, but has wonderful ideas, some of this close to sleuthing. And he was once one of the people on the British uh, Shark Tank program, but they kicked him out because it was too nice. There was no drama. Another one was my old boss and... Uh, and uh, partner Jimmy Connick in Canada when we ran Golden Capital and basically changed Canadian financial landscape by breaking the old club. Who else? I would say uh, Admiral Nelson because he acted correct strategy and changed naval warfare and paid the price. And of course Warren Buffett, but the early, early Warren Buffett when he was still younger and doing things uh, that could, could help the investors. I mean, that's kind of a pretty long list, but you asked. Yeah, perfect. And how did your passion for investing start? Well, I started, um, I always wanted to be the one who writes the checks, not the one who receives them. So after being an engineer for many years, I mean, engineering came to me because I was a model airplane enthusiast. So after I worked as engineering, I went to business school to to be an investor eventually. And when I started investing, first of all, I was in the stock market on the broker side. And again, uh, we did things unconventionally. But when I started investing in the market, it was to try to take the money of those who tried to take mine. 
And the idea is to do what they don't do or do it better. And after starting some hedge funds and running the money, I realized that value investing begins to be less and less useful. But the, to answer your question, the, the temptation to be investing in the market started with the idea of not having to work. That before I realized that to make money, you have to work even harder. And you have written this wonderful book, The Sleuth Investor. And some people might not be familiar with this term, money sleuthing, uh, and are more familiar with Philip Fisher's term scuttlebutt. So can you start out by telling us the difference between scuttlebutting and sleuthing? Well, the idea, uh, Philip Fisher was an investor in California when long time ago when Hewlett Packard was still a beginning startup or right after that. And his idea was to go in his beat up old car, a little old full car and talk to engineers and talk to people who actually did the engineering and the money running and the company running and see what's really going on. And the basic idea is, is founded on the concept that the real world is not its reflections. It's not the numbers. And this is an idea that goes back in history from 1870. I'll go later into that. But sleuthing means that the difference between the thing and its, its reflection, its, its blips on screen and ink on paper. And Philip Fisher did it in a kind of not disorganized, but unstructured way. And I always was more structured person. So when I began to invest, I had a lot of to-do list also, you know, when you fly, you have, you have checklist. But eventually I realized that I'm really looking for the, for the real physical information before it became a blip or an ink squiggle. And that's what the real, informa the real information advantage is. And then you take the money of all those who don't do it. I'm going to perhaps later on make some analogies that will make it more clear, but that was where the idea for the book came up. And uh, at the time, I also wrote this, a thriller, which was making the rounds among publishers. So waiting for the, for the thriller to be bought, I wrote a book in the meantime, The uh, Sleuth Investor. It was bought pretty fast by McGraw-Hill. And so then since then, I'm getting a lot of positive responses. Yeah, very effective there. And why are you sharing all these uh, advice for people in, in your book? Why not keep it to yourself? That's a very good question. Some of my former partners told me, if it works, don't tell them, just do it. And um, I thought about it, but I, I hope it doesn't, doesn't sound like conceited, but the idea, it has its real work. And most people just don't want to do it. I, I, I have a channel on YouTube, which I haven't put on anything for the last few months. And some of the subscribers said, we lazy, just tell us which means tell us what to buy and what to sell. We don't want to know the work. And I say, no, I don't want to give you free fish. I want to teach you how to fish. So to answer your question, Eddie, I don't think that more than one in 10 or one in 50 of the audience will do it because it really requires work. Uh, the basic idea behind looking for physical information is that for a piece of information to be useful for investing on, it has to have three criteria is the holy trinity it has to be true has to be significant and has to be exclusive to you and the only way to generate it is to do the work yourself if you trust on others they trust to sell you the stuff they are invested in or they are lying up because they want to promote the book of business i'm just promoting my book my real book 
And um, you never really know if it's real useful or not. And you can only know if it's useful if you know the business, which again, you can only know by going down to the trenches and checking it out. And if we go into the book a bit, you call sleuthing an investigative field craft and uh, take us through some, some fascinating examples. Uh, and uh, adventures actually in the book and uh, I want you maybe to introduce our listeners a bit to the concept by by telling us your favorite sleuthing story. Well there are quite a number of them. Um, Let me start by giving you an anecdote from the world of intelligence. I was never in intelligence, I just researched it for my thriller which by the way did get published. You can see it on Amazon. Um, uh, One of the useful ways to understand sleuthing is compare it to real intelligence. So let me start with an anecdote about an American general uh, who was the number two in the CIA by the name of General uh, Vernon Walters. He was close to 60, and he spoke five languages perfectly. Um, He spoke both Hochdeutsch and Plattdeutsch. He spoke French, both the vernacular and the very high level. I don't know German, but I know French. And uh, when he was in 1989 in a residentura of the CIA in East Berlin, he went out for a stroll and he talked to everybody. He gave them cigarettes, they gave him cigarettes back. He smoked with cab drivers. He talked to hookers and their pimps. He talked to Metro D's. He talked to people on the street. He asked them, what do you think is going on? He came back to the American embassy and he wrote a very famous cable. It's today in the CIA museum in Langley, Virginia. And they're not very proud of it, but it's there. He is proud of it. And the, and the cable said, the cable was addressed to Jim Baker, who was Secretary of State, and he said the place is going to blow. I mean, not in these words. Something is going to happen that will change the country fundamentally in a week. And Jim Baker called him up and said, where do you get it from? We have people who listen to everybody. We have a, probably a microphone in the apartment of the mistress of Honecker. We know everything, and none of our, none of our sources told us. He said, I went down the street and everybody feels it in their fingertips. They know and they don't know why they know. And Jim Baker told uh, General Walters, withdraw the cable. I'm going to have trouble in Congress because we can substantiate it and I don't believe you. And uh, Walters said, I have a copy of the cable. I'm not withdrawing it. And I have friends in Congress too, which leads to a segue to Seneca, an old Roman who said, not all human virtues are worth nothing without the first one, which is courage. And that's something you have to remember when you do some sleuthing. So General Walters did not withdraw the cable. It's there. And within a week, people in the street picked up shovels and pickaxes and, and went and wrecked the wall. And history changed. Now, how did he pick up what others didn't? Because there's information that cannot be encapsulated in blips and ink. Later on, I'll speak about the Turing test, and you'll see why it's extremely relevant to sleuthing work. So that's the first kind of anecdote, which is, has the, as Kishinger said, has the added advantage of being true. And if you, if you follow this, you realize that the money management business has the same division of labor as the intelligence gathering business in two ways. The first way you, is you have four kinds of work definitions. You have agents who collect information in the field, probably physical and people information. You have uh, uh, agent recruiters or handlers. 
Then you have the boffins, back office intelligence analysts, who like to see themselves as scientists. Finally, you have the trigger pullers. These are either the, the, the consumer of the information. In the uh, intelligence field, it can be either generals in the field or politicians. And in the investment field, it's the you know, people who are traders who pull the trigger. At the same time, you also have division into SIGINT and HUMINT, signal intelligence, in which you look after reflections of the real world, and HUMINT, which is the intelligence of you to get from agents. You also have some other areas like communication intelligence and others, but I divide into two areas. And this led me to the division in the book, because in the book, I divide the work that you do into looking at people, product, and plant and periphery. And these are the areas where you do physical investigations. Now, just one mention to, to, uh, to do an analogy less aggressively. Uh, when I give talks at universities, uh, the people, I ask them, how many of you have been reporters? One or two. How many policemen? There was one sometimes. How many military intelligence? They never say yes. And <laughs> if you are a reporter, and your boss send you to report about the fire. You don't report AP or Reuters. You have to go there physically and talk to Mrs. Johnson across from the fire, and you ask her if she saw anybody running out. And then you go and smell the fire to see if you can smell gasoline. You do physical investigation. So for a reporter, the idea of doing original reporting comes natural. Maybe not today, because they're almost all politicians. But in the past, the real reporters were all investigative reporters. So if you want to take the money of people in the market, do what they don't do. Go and do physical investigations because the physical fact became a blip or ink. So there's some analogies. I can give you some, some others later on. But there are plenty of other anecdotes. And how did you use this when you were a hedge fund manager at Giraffe Capital, for example? Well, we did quite a bit of investigations on our own. To answer your question directly, what sleuthing did we do? Um, Warren Buffett, at a certain point, bought a big chunk of IBM because based on the numbers, and maybe by talking to the top people at IBM, he saw its value. At the time, I was running a company called Giraffe Capital. And Giraffe Capital presented itself as neither a bull nor a bear, and it sees what they don't by refusing to see what they do. And all my partners and some of the some of the unit holders told me, look at IBM. You know, Grandpa Warren Buffett has been buying it. He sees something you don't see. So I made a few phone calls to people I know at IBM, not officers of the company, not people at board level, but people below who don't give me anything which is I shouldn't know, not about contracts. I asked them, what do you think of the CEO? What do you think of the CFO? Do you trust them? Do you think they know what they're doing? And this was following the advice of somebody who was briefly the dean of Stanford Graduate School of Business, Rene McPherson. He was once the CEO of Dana Corporation, a automotive parts suppliers. And he was asked, who is the best money manager that you know? And he said, it's the machinist on the floor of my company. Because he's making $15,000 a year. You can see it was a long time ago. And with $15,000 a year, he managed to uh, save for his kid's college, buy his wife a dress for Christmas, and save money for a fishing pole. And he's running the, the lathe. 
if I'm not going to ask him how he does it, I am missing big brain. So I ask people at IBM, the grants who all of them have PhDs, what do you think of the CEO? What do you think of her? And the response we got to unprintable. We asked them, what do you think of the, C of the chairman? Again, unprintable. The chairman of IBM at the time became famous for allegedly giving Bill Gates a contract for, suppl for supplying software to IBM PC without asking for a second supplier clause, only allegedly. And because of that, he handed to Bill Gates tens of billions. And the CEO got bad reviews for a variety of other reasons. So we gave IBM a miss. We didn't short it because we don't like shorting. We short only very few stocks. And um, also it has dividends. So, it, it, you know, it's a bother. Also, shorting is a very big business. I don't want to go into it. And after a while, so we missed it. And after a while came two proofs. Uh, we checked, I checked a few more. I also got to see a copy of the IBM uh, employees uh, sort of gossip sheet between each other. They don't reveal any secret, just what they think of each other. Now, within a few months after that, the CEO said fa fairly publicly that about 10 or 15% of IBM employees didn't keep up their technical skills. And she's going to let them like one or two years to catch up. If not, they will be let go. And this was, of course, idiotic because immediately IBM is known as the company that have people who are below par. If you are trying to recruit people from engineering school, they, nobody wants to go to a place where there are some underpar people around. Your resume won't benefit from this. And all the good ones in IBM begin to send out resumes. And if that was not enough, within a few months afterwards, maybe half a year later, the same CEO said she's going to invite the R&D people of Apple to talk with the R&D people of IBM. The adjective that came out of that were even more unprintable because Apple, Steve Jobs, was known as the, as the guy who stole the idea legally from Park, from Palo Alto Research Center of, of Xerox. They came up with the WYSIWYG, what you see is what you guess, screen, and the, uh, and the, and the Apple mouse. And IBM people complain they have a lot of new ideas, nobody executes on them. If you are going to bring the fox into the hen house to steal more ideas, not only you don't trust them, but it shows poor judgment. So I believe that if Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, who are certainly smarter than me, if they have talked to people at IBM lower level, I would suggest they may have had second thoughts. Yeah, as equity analysts, we try to cover some ground and talk to customers and suppliers and different people in the company, of course, but it's, uh, it's a time-consuming work and uh, you show many good examples of how one can do it. Um, but what do, would you say is required to, to become a stock sleuth? First of all, you need to have some common sense, curiosity about people, and you have to have the ability to talk to people directly and really get interested. Um, I'll give you another example. Um, I occasionally help, I, I mentor some students in McMaster. A friend of mine runs a very good program there for uh, hedge funding and CFA and uh, people who want to be in the investment world. And an idea came two or three years ago looking at Fossil, a company that sells watches and handbags and so on. Very good company. And somebody fingered it. it the stock was too expensive at the time, so I just gave it a miss. But I, I, I took a look at the value line summary sheet. 
And I kind of try to have a snapshot of the numbers, how much revenue per share, earnings per share, margin, and so on. And um, the stock went down, down, down. It was close to seven or eight bucks. I was in Florence with my, uh, life, with my lifelong love, Marjorie, and I was there. We went to the main, main square, and there was a fossil store. So I went in and began to talk to the salesman there. I said, how is it going? How goes it? I mean, what do you do? Where are you from? Uh, which restaurant you recommend? Which shop? Which, which, what you recommend? How, how is the sales going? Oh, lousy. Why is it lousy? Nobody buys anymore. So you have all this Chinese and Japanese crowd outside. Nobody buys watches here in Florence. They buy something. Said so no. The company is selling now only online. They have a new online business and it's taking off like a rocket. And they are making double the, mo- double the money. So why should they sell through us? So I said, why do they keep you open? It costs money. He said, I don't know, for the advertising probably. So what do you do with this? Physical fact given to you from a physical person, not an avatar. So you go home, after you go home, you know, you take some time to recover from the wine and the food. And you have to start contacting some people who are watch designers. Difficult to find them. So you look at consumer product designers and you ask them. And you start learning what does it take to be a consumer product, consumer product design. There's a, huge, there's a very good college, University of Designers and Art in Ontario, uh, which is the Ontario College of, you know, of, of Technology and, and Applied Arts. And you can ask people there. They'll give you people that they know. And you want to have introduction to an introduction. And after a few weeks, you begin to get the lingo. And you talk to them and you realize that Fawcett begins to have a lot of effort to recruit new watch designers and everything is online and margins online are double. So you run a quick number in your mind. The number is always there. Uh, at the peak, they had 45 bucks a share in revenue. The, the maximum uh, net margin was 12%. So uh, they already had some problem because they have a crossover. Old product dies, new product comes up. So in the middle, you have a point which looks awful because double the cost, but the new revenue doesn't make up the old ones. But if the new one is going to have 18 to 20% margins, revenue went from 45 bucks a share to maybe 25, 30. It went down to 20 in COVID. And if they're going to start rising up of 30 bucks a share in revenues and they're still generating cash, you're going to have six bucks a share in earnings on the stock price of in the meantime, six, went down to five, went down to four. Cash per share is 450. What do I miss, as the Germans say, egg in my beer? <laughs> if, you, if you look at the numbers, you have to supplement them with physical sleuthing. And once you do that, the most difficult part comes up. Keep your mouth shut. Because if you tell people about that, it's like handing them free money. So you have to talk to people all the time. And then you sleuth by talking to people mid-level in the company and below. And you ask them questions. You say, how do you do what you're doing? What do you study in school? Oh, I study veterinary. So how does it help you to get in there? Oh, because I was working in a vet shop and the CEO came and I talked to him and he hired me or something. You ask them. Almost nobody asks them about their life. And you ask about it, you establish a human contact. And if you can do it, recruit your sister to do it or your girlfriend or your mother or grandmother. Find somebody who does what you cannot do. Don't do what you can't. And then let me go to what Charlie Munger recommends. Here's some good advice. He likes what Lee Kuan Yew 
of Singapore said, the secret in success to success is do less of what doesn't work and do more of what does. If you keep track of all the things that work for you and doesn't work and don't work for you, I mean, I shouldn't do options and I don't because I suck at this. Also in turnarounds, I only do the ones I'm really sure about because it, you know, it grinds you out. Other things I'm better at, I'm trying to do more of it and so on. Or if I'm not sure, just do a smaller position. So when you look at things, try to try to get physical information. And once you do that, you at least have a chance of taking the money of those. Don't do it. And some people might ask then for companies that are not having any physical products, how, how should one uh, sleuth those kind of companies? That's a very good question. I mean, if you are talking about the company has a pure R&D, don't forget when you are looking at, at a company, you never look at the company. You look at its balance sheet, income statement, and maybe talk to a few people. But the, the, the balance sheet, which is your first snapshot, and the income statement, the left side of the balance sheet is the real side of physical facts. You have um, uh, real estate, you have machinery, you have raw material, and so on. And the right side is fiction. You have uh, the debt, you have the shareholding, you have the, uh, the warrants, whatever it is. Stick to the left, young investor. Stay left. If you stick there, they're going to do better than the one who only go to the right. Right is where the CFAs roam. And they're looking for the penny on the streetlight. It ain't there. You go on the left, that's where you find things that really happen. If you're talking about tech companies, um, in tech or companies that don't do anything physical, to create it, they spend real money. So, again, I have the value bias, which makes me miss many of the long-term growers. I can talk about that later on. That's my shame. I miss out the best one. But you don't have to catch all of them. You only have to catch the good ones. In, in, when you look at tech companies, look how much R&D they have done over the last three years. Because when they get into trouble, they sometimes trade very, very cheaply, either biotech or electronic tech or other kind of tech. If they, let's say, spent over the last three years 100 million bucks collectively in R&D, Check to see how much is in R, which is research. It's like wildcat drilling. Maybe you hit, maybe you don't. And how much is in D, in development of, let's say, a software program that will meet client required specifications. If you manage to buy the company at less than what they spend over the last three years on D, part of the R&D, it begins to be worth your while to invest some research time in it. And then you call people up. You call people in the research department, you call engineers. If you don't know who to call, ask people in engineering school that have been with you there. Who do you know who knows somebody who knows somebody who will introduce me? And it's like, like getting a job. You're trying to get introduced to people who will be able to give you what you want. Stay with the people. But the targeting is key. Um, in my website, um, I'm giving two targeting methods. Um, in my book, there's going to, in my next book, there's going to be more. But one targeting method for extreme value is going to be buying companies below R&D that is client-directed. The other method is buy, buy companies below cash value. After the uh, 08 or 09 crash, some companies have raised money just before the crash and they were trading at below cash value. And a friend of mine, Martin Braun, and I 
coined the term walking wallet because you have a company with three bucks a share in cash and they are trading for one buck. But if they are spending about 50 cents a share a year on salaries and pizza for the employees, then in four years, they run out of cash. You do research and you buy the company for less than cash and they, they will go up. And we did that and we made like two or three times our money over a year. But we were stupid because some of these stocks went up 20 times. It would take but work to see which one this would be. So buying companies at less than cash per share, it's called negative enterprise value, is the first target for sleuthing. And for long-term excellent companies, you look at what they call exceptional companies indicator. Um, again, these are only targeting. Sleuthing come afterwards. Um, you want a company that have both a good business, which is high return on capital, Joe Greenblatt has done something like this called the magic formula investing, but it's only one out of three. So you look at return on capital or return on equity, and then you look at the gross margins, which show how good the business it is. And this means you're going to miss supermarkets because they have low margins. And then you look at the sales growth. All of these are a similar level of, of uh, similar sort of size. So you can have return on equity of maybe 20% and gross margin of 15, 20% and sales growth of 20%, you sum them all up and you have 60. Anything above 80 or 100 begins to get my attention. And if you do a list, if you run a screen of all the companies with the sum, this magic sum of more than 100, all the obvious suspects come out. Into it, you're going to have uh, Amazon for a while, Microsoft, and so on. But when do you want to buy them? And to do that, you divide this magic sum by the EV to EBITDA, which kicks out all the companies that have no EBITDA. And if the ratio there above two or three or four, they really are worth sleuthing. Now, unfortunately, this indicator, this targeting indicator, only came up with the last five or 10 years. So it missed a Canadian company called Constellation Software that have been a 150 beggar uh, from like, 10, 20 bucks to 2,000 in 16 or 18 years. And I know the guy, he's a friend of mine, Mark Leonard. He's a business genius, very quiet, doesn't make waves, doesn't go on the internet, and he's running a terrific company. But I bought the beginning, sold later on, because I, my thought is I only want to buy things cheap. It was never cheap. So you do targeting to target your own sleuthing, because you're right, Eddie, it, it, it takes time. So you don't want to waste your time by becoming your own research director, so to speak. You allocate your people time. Only the people are yourself or people you hire. For ID generation, do you start with screening or do you use, uh, what kind of tools do you use for that? Well, I mean, I have three or four screens. Plus, I keep my eyes and ears open and I, 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 I follow people and try to see what the exceptional people um, the screens you don't need me because there are plenty of screens out there and I, I can give you them two or three or four because the real the real secret is in the work as they say on Wall Street you don't get played, paid for the work you pay for the grief you really have to do all the work but look look at the people and try to see who is exceptional um, and the exceptionality comes from I would say you study history and you study commercial history and you have to start understanding the idea that the real information 
is not in the numbers. It's not just in the blips and the ink. And I'll, I'll segue into it to the main idea of both my previous book and the next book. And this idea that runs like a golden thread in all modern science from, I think, the last almost 200 years, from 1850, 1870 onwards, um, your basic tool of analysis is the accounting, the balance sheet, the income statement. This was invented in the 1500s in the Renaissance by Luca Pacioli, who was a genius who invest, invented accounting. And it's, it's, I wouldn't go into it, but he basically said, I can look at human commerce, which is combat and drama. People, you try, people create a commercial empire and they engage employees, they focus their effort and they make money. He said, I can condense all this effort into numbers, structured numbers. Yes, it's going to leave a lot of stuff behind, but it's going to help. But if you want to make money, you have to look at the stuff left behind, the information that is not uh, included in the blips and the ink. The idea that all information can be contained in ink squiggles is universal, both in investing and in science. And one of the great controversies in science is how much of information about the world world of people and the universe does not get into ink. And if you talk to scientists about it, they get hives. I talked to, I used to be a scientist myself, a rocket scientist. I have a degree in aeronautical engineering. I worked in the Canadian cyclotron, the particle accelerator. And my math and physics grade are not top notch, but they're above average. And in 1870, there was a German physiologist, Raymond, R-E-Y, and he wrote a book about scientific knowledge. And he coined the term ignoramus versus ignorabimus. Ignoramus means we don't know in Latin, ignorabimus, we cannot know. And I am looking at all the information that people who do standard stuff cannot know because it cannot be contained in squiggles. Um, stop me if I'm getting too long about this, but in 1900, there was a famous Congress of mathematicians in Paris was run by David Hilbert, who was the primary mathematician in the world, still considered a genius. He came with 23 questions who tried to answer basically, how much can we know in math? His idea was we can know everything. And somebody asked him, but maybe we cannot know everything. And he got really exercised and he said, we want to know, we must know, we will know. He said it in German. And I think it's on his tombstone. And he, he was emphatic, and he was wrong. There was a guy in the audience by the name of, of Kurt Gödel, who was a friend of Einstein, and he came with a nine-page paper about incompleteness theorem that shows that mathematics has a hole in it. There's something that cannot know, and it cannot, pry, it cannot probe its own mysteries. Much later on came the, the, the person who gave a test if you are investing via the internet, you really should know. And that's the Turing test. Alan Turing was a British genius who worked for Bletchley Park, the, the, the code breakers. He helped win the Second World War. And he came with a famous test that goes as follows. You have a wall with a slot in the wall. Behind the wall, there's an entity. It can be an artificial intelligence or a machine or a lying human, or whatever it can be, and you can ask it questions, 
by sliding questions on a piece of paper through the wall. And you're going to get answers coming back. The Turing test is, can you tell if the machine, if the entity behind the wall is a robot, artificial intelligence, or a human? You're not allowed to pick behind the wall. And what is the answer? Why is the answer important? Because the real key here is you are not allowed to pick behind the wall. Because if you could, you would see quite easily if it's a human or Android. Even an Android, like this beautiful Swedish actress who played in the movie AI, because you can tell her dirty jokes if she's blushes, blushing or not, look in the eye to see if the, if the pupils are expanding or not, which is what Lotharius usually do. I mean, there are so many ways to see if something is human or not. Um, now, if you are investing only via the internet and you don't move your butt from home, you sit at home drinking coffee with your finger in the air, you go click, 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 you're not doing investing research. You are doing internet porn. Just like porn is not real sex, if you excuse the analogy. If you are sitting at home investing just via the internet touring slot, you are getting stuff that maybe maybe lies, probably is, maybe irrelevant, maybe true, or maybe not. How do you know? The trick is step behind the wall, turn off the internet, go outside, talk to real people, like teenagers. You can't try to see to pick up girls just with the internet. Go out and talk to them. They'll tell you if they want you or not. So you have to leave the mathematics world and do physical sleuthing and then you may get some information. Now, all this part, some people will gloss over, so I better stop. But that's something you can do by do physical sleuthing. And the other thing you can do is try to see how you can identify exceptional people. And I, I have uh, tons of follow-up questions to that, to that uh, comment of yours. And uh, I want to start with the people side, actually. Because I want to understand, uh, for example, me and Eddie have, have had a lot of discussions about how do you... So say that you have, you, you have um, identified a, a CEO that you think is really, is really good but, uh, and is of high integrity. But the question is really, okay, how, how smart is this person? I mean, is he super smart or is he an ordinary human, more or less, if you know what I'm saying? How, how would you... Um, I mean, what work would you put in to identify that? Okay, um, I don't say you should say, look at somebody beyond integrity, but if you look at Steve Jobs and you ask people, you are going to find that many didn't appreciate this side of him, and yet he could perform. One way to try to identify exceptional people is to meet quite a number of them so you could see what it reminds you of. Um, when you're going to business school, they give you a lot of case studies so you can identify which company reminds you of company in the past? Um, in normal life, you don't meet any exceptional people. You don't meet many. I mean, if you are lucky, if you meet three or four. I've met a few because I have some gray hair. And as you grow older, you begin to meet more. But one way is to look at history. If you, if you read Plutarch, Parallel Lives, he basically looks at people that either did something exceptional and also did some exceptional stupidities. You can begin to identify some types. Uh, before you even read history, look at the Maya Briggs classification. They let you classify people into 16 different categories. And you should be able to identify the 16 categories on the fly. If somebody is an introvert or an extrovert, if he's more interested in pushing people around or pushing concepts around, if he reacts with 
with thinking or with feeling, if he's more intuitive or more si or symbols oriented. You have 16 categories and you can do the analysis fairly fast. It's not all inclusive. Intelligence come into it. There are some people who are terrific, but they're less intelligent. And there are them who are very intelligent, but fearful. And there are those who have integrity and don't. But I prefer the Maya Brooks classification to the call, to call the big five, which what I think Jordan Peterson likes. I think it, it, the, the big five is good for analytical purposes. I look for more the synthetic purposes to put together teams. So you can read the book about the Maya Brick certification, read, uh, read Plutarch, and try to see what does this see or remind you of. For example, take a look at the big piece of history, which will give a vivid example, the, the Battle of Waterloo. By the way, you can also study military uh, victories and defeats. Uh, it tells you quite a bit about strategy. Um, in the Battle of Waterloo, uh, Napoleon managed to escape from the island and he organized the army again and he went to fight. And the Europeans organized a huge coalition of the willing and the bribe because the British economy managed to help them bribe the, the Holland and uh, Prussia. And the question was, would they, stay, would they be honest and stay bribed? And in Waterloo, uh, the question was, um, could they act together? Uh, Napoleon... Um, knew that uh, Duke Wellington, who was the general in charge of the coalition, would have um, the Prussian general from Blücher coming from behind to help him. So Napoleon, who was a terrific genius CEO and general, he sent one of his top generals, general named Grouchy, to, um, to stop uh, Blücher from coming in. And he chose... Grouchy, because Grouchy was an, a, basically a yes man. He obeyed orders to the letter. Grouchy wasn't a bad guy. I mean, his sister, Sophie, was married to Condorcet, who was a guy who published the first pamphlet about women in the city to give them the vote. So he, he was a good guy, but he was a yes man. And because he's a yes man, today we are speaking English and not French. Now, French, Francais, très belle langue, mais je préfère l'anglais. French is very good language, very nice language, but I prefer English. Because Grouchy, he came to hold off uh, from Blücher. But Blücher managed to convince his people to cut through the mud. It was awful, awful uh, storm. And because his soldiers loved him, he was 82 years young, and he participated in all, his, all their trouble, they dragged the cannon through the mud. He said, are you going to make me break my word of honor to Wellington? And he managed to come there on time. Grouchy held the cannons of Blücher from the wrong side. He should have disobeyed his order and went to where the real battle was. But he was a yes man. And because of that, we are speaking English today because Wellington won and it was squeaky, as he said. It was a very near-run thing. So the choice of the general, because he obeys order, was Napoleon's choice, the way I see it. So when you... Talk to a CEO, try to see if this business requires somebody who only hires yes people and commands from above, like Putin does, and see his result today in the Ukraine. He only has yes people who don't dare disobey him all across. You saw, you saw him scaring the, scaring the pants of his employees, employees, so to speak, in all the public meetings. Wellington, on the other side, gave orders. His soldiers esteemed him a lot. And... That every now and then they took the initiative. And he, he 
he, he rewarded them for the initiative with prizes or punished them if they were wrong. The, the Napoleon lost, Wellington won. To give a more American analogy, if you are playing football, the coach has, has an earphone in each of his players' ear, and he can move them around like Napoleon moved his people in Waterloo. If you play basketball, then you basically give the orders to the players. They go to the field. They know what the play is, but they have more discretion. My younger son was a top basketball player, later worked in the NBA, so I know about basketball more than I would know otherwise. So the answer to your question is, how do you know if the CEO is good in general? You can see it as a personality, but then you analyze the business. What kind of personality do you need for this business? Do you need the wily general? Do you need the standard slave driver? Do you need somebody else? And this also means that you need, as an investor, have the ability to judge which person is required in which situation. It's a long answer, but it's usually a long process. Oh, it's a good answer. I mean, it depends. It's typically it's typically a good answer. And I mean, I can just think about the, I mean, histor- from a history perspective, I mean, uh, different companies, uh, I mean, um, it's... It, uh, it depends on the type of business, as you say. I mean, for example, um, if you have a factory, then maybe you don't need too much uh, of uh, inventiveness from the employees. You just need to make them do as much as possible in, in a short period of time. But in, in today's IT companies, you need a lot of, I mean, uh, inventiveness from the employees. That, that, that's both true and not always true. Uh, because if you take a look from Sweden, uh, the um, Volvo plant notoriously took a manufacturing operation and turned it on its ear because it, they were competing with a very exact mechanized manufacturer in Ford and GM. And the head of Volvo at the time said, let's employ our people's creativity. And they changed the teams. Instead of having each employee uh, responsible for one part, you put the left I know, windshield wiper or whatever, and they become expert in this, the team is responsible for a car. And they would know you have a team of 20 people or whatever, usually it's more, not more than 20, and they decide on vacation, they decide who's the what, they decide how much they want to order, and they are rewarded based on the quality of the cars they produce and on the profit the car makes. And it, it was a sensation when they managed to make cars that were out quality, the better quality of, of Japanese cars that were working by the bending method. Um, the American who taught the Japanese worked like five and six sigma. So even though in manufacturing you have to use people who are more mechanized, automatic process, like a Charlie Chaplin kind of model, it sometimes helps you to break them all and listen to the one employee who said, let's change it. But it's your decision whether you want to change it and you take a risk. So... It's like in war, you sometimes send the whole army and sometimes you send teams who will be able to take pick up the army one by one. There's creativity in war, creativity in investing, and there's art in this. So there are rules, but you should know where to break the rules. I mean, I don't like trading, but every now and then, you know, a piece of money comes and say, please take me. <laughs> like when oil was minus 40 bucks a barrel. You know, what more do you want? 
But how did how did you play that? Because it's uh, I mean it's it's a bit complex with these future contracts and and so on. So if you want to play oil for the long term, then that's right. I mean, if, what you do that at the time Canadian oil stocks went down to ridiculous levels, and all the management was buying. Now you have to who the management. There's one or two guys in Canada which I know. One of them invented the uh, the income fund. Very creative guy, and he was buying the hell out of the stock, and two or three others. And when oil goes to minus forty. You know it's going to go at least to zero one of these days, maybe 10. So at this moment, the question is, when do you sell it? And you know, I, I made a few phone calls. I talked to a few people and tried to make sure that there was no invention of fusion engine out there will make oil totally unnecessary. So uh, but like, aside from times like that, every now and then, the normal times in the market is when sleuthing really helps and you have to manage your own research efforts and if we go into the tools you need i'm sure many are interested in in more tangible uh, advice maybe and, and in the book you mentioned that the phone and beer are your two favorite tools to get the information why is that you you basically you call people up i mean you, you pro- preferably have drunk with them once before or met them once before today it's mostly the phone and zoom because in the COVID, people are afraid to meet with each other. But it begins to, to be up again because you want to meet with people in informal circumstances. And then you ask them questions. And as usual, the best selling tool is your ears. As you can, as you can hear, I, I love to talk, but I try to keep it to lecturing. But you have to listen to people. You ask them, what do you like about this job? I mean, do you like it? Let's take the mythical... Uh, machinist of, of René McPherson's Dana Corporation, you get a tool, a tool to the plant somehow because you love it. I mean, uh, when you come in, you mentioned you've been an engineer and you love, I was a model airplane. I used to, I used to cut the, 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 the prop uh, spinners on my own. So I want to see the lathe. And you talk to, to the lathe operators. I see it's very clean outside. How do you do it? You say, I clean it every night. It's you know, production going up for sure. And how... How do you interact with the other team? Do you have any ideas? For sure. Does top management interested in your ideas? Do they adopt them? Oh, yes, they do. Or oh, no, they don't. They don't really care. Or oh, they adopt. Yeah, they even give me a reward. I, I feel more inclined. All these are questions that give you an idea how the place works. Because the great secret in, in analysis is that most are doing analysis of the security. Ben Graham book was security analysis. It was not company analysis. And just like in, in physics, when you go below a certain level, the rules stop applying. Um, again, at the risk of going scientific, um, there's something called reductionism, which means the question, does, is, is the real world completely reflected by, by its symbols on paper, by shadows on the wall, or are the things behind? In the real world, when you go below something called the uh, below a certain clunk length, like extremely small, math stops working. And when you go in the company below the below the unit level, below the division level, you talk about interaction between people. There's no math anymore. It's a specific CEO and a specific employee. So let's make one more analogy to chess, and then to specific tricks. Um, you're basically playing chess with all the world. A lot of Kasparov traders out there, but all of them think that all the pawns are alike. 
they think, all of them think cash is alike. Um, so if you're playing chess with somebody, you think all the horses, all the knights are alike, all the bishops are alike, but you know that the two queens hate each other. Or this horse is drunk because last night he went to a birthday party because you know his birthday. And you know that he's going to get an order to move and he will not move. If you start seeing people as individual people, you can have all the CFA ranked in the world and I will take your money. Again, one more analogy. Until the, I, I, I'm mentioning so many things because I can hear you arguing with me in your mind. If you play, if you play poker, you don't, I mean, you don't play the cards. You play the faces. You play the tails. Beyond a certain level, you have to play the, op the, the opponent. So you have to know who the people are. So most of the tools are trying to understand what the other persons are. So you're, you're, you're really trying to put all the pieces together. I mean, talking to people um, and also, I mean, um, buying the products, for example, you mentioned as well in the book that you buy the products and test them and so on. And, and uh, in the end, you talk about that you build sort of a star map of everything. Can you, can you describe that a bit further? The, the, the star map is something which in, in intelligence operation, they follow people individually. And if you see somebody, you always come with somebody else. For example, uh, the Russians send the team to put some poison. When they, they, they poison Skripal in London, they send two people. But the people that they send with the GRU, the military intelligence, and they are the so-called so dummies in the business. They're almost the clowns because they send two people who are even came with two passports with, with sequential numbers. So if you, fo if you follow... The, if you, if, if you, one of the numbers come up, you look to see if the other person will come up there. If you see a team that always comes in threes and you see one of them, you follow the others too. Um, the, the star map is you put on a piece of paper all the names of top people in the company, the key people. Let's say the president, the CEO, the CFO, uh, where they live, how much they make, where they went to school, where they've been in the army, where they served if they've been in the army, what's the background, um, do they uh, go for football or basketball? Do they do sailing or do they go for NASCAR? And try to see similarities. And if, for example, um, you see that the main customer of the company is the CEO's wife's cousin, and the CEO is getting div divorced, I'm giving a ridiculous example. Is it important or is it? How could it not be? You try to go to the human level to see how things really work in life. Who does what to whom? Now, you cannot do it in very large companies. So if you go to a company like IBM or GE or Apple or one of those, they, let me give you an example from an, an, an anonymous conglomerate. There's a conglomerate that is now bidding for another company, and you don't know if the, if the CEO is going to bid Go crazy, go crazy and offer an enormously high price. And um, so you want to know what people think of him. So you go to the, where the headquarters are and you go see where the, the fanciest restaurant where the, where the executives eat. And you talk and you have some meals and you talk to the waitress and you talk to the maitre d'. How are the people from company X, from the conglomerate X? What do you think of the CEO? Oh, I mean, he is a genius. But I mean, how is he? Is he a good tipper? And uh, the waitress tells you, oh, I mean, if he comes with his wife, his third wife, by the way, uh, he is a stingy tipper. But he comes with everybody in the company? Oh, I mean, he, he's large. Is it important? 
maybe yes, maybe no. So you ask them, okay, uh, his third wife is he a good guy. I mean, so if he's a, if he's a generous tipper, probably all the waitresses want to serve the table. I said, oh no, why not? Because he has long hands. What do they call a me too problem? So, long hands, but yeah, it's difficult. It's his third wife, but you know, rumors are that he's also doing it to the secretaries. And the rumors are that the board had to buy off three secretaries who threatened to sue, and they paid a lot of money. And I say, well, so maybe many of the maybe of the people he wants to, maybe of the secretaries he, the the uh, uh, the waitresses want to apply to a job as secretary in the conglomerate. They say, oh no, oh no. The rumors are that the board gave him gave him an ultimatum: if one, if the fourth one comes, you're fired. And the rumors are that he just was found to be, and he is now on his last legs. Gossip is all over the place. Well, you don't re- you, you don't read that in an annual report. <laughs> That's right. And then and then afterwards, if the, this this fictional guy said to the board, "I am going to divorce this one and marry and marry her," and it didn't help. Now, why is this important? Because the CFO of this company, this mythical company, this mythical conglomerate, was not really up to par to be CEO, but it was semi-known that if he will not get the CEO position, he, the, was, the Wall Street Journal or New York Times will, will get the tip about all this mishmash in the company. And therefore, the CFO did become the CEO, and over the first two or three years, he had to come up to par, and all the offshore entities that financed some of the acquisitions had to be written off. So. In some cases, knowing gossip is meaningless. In some cases, it's meaningful. But the rule is that in in these cases, you really keep your mouth shut because people have a right to private life. But you should know stuff on the physical level, but always also know the numbers. And there's an orderly way you go about it. I mean, read my book and the second book will have even more on those things. And do you think this has changed over the last 15 years since you published the first book? It certainly has, because this this year, first of all, there are many more smart people in the market, and almost all of them have information at the fingertips. You also have people like Renaissance Technology, Rentec, with Jim Simmons, who is a certified genius. He has a Fields Medal. I think he his work was packing, I think, seven seven dimensional spheres in an eight dimensional space, or I, maybe I'm missing a dimension. And his genius is also managing other geniuses. And they have computers that don't just look at financial data, but also look at at temperatures in the world and political upheavals and all kinds of things. And they follow what they call trails of smoke. And if you want to do anything with numbers, they'll take your money. And I certainly, and even they had a bad year. So if 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 you invest today based strictly on the internet and on numbers, the value investing, I think, at least stay on the left side. And if you want another example, which I I try to be useful, not just to give you physics and math, um, let's assume that you see on the company balance sheet on the left side that they are carrying carrying real estate at about $200 million in value. And you want to know what it's really worth for the margin of safety, to, to see what really they have behind them. And what do you do? You can start looking at all the sales of real estate in the area, or you can ask around and so on. But if you're Carl Icahn, what you will do, 
you call the top real estate broker in the city that only deal with billion dollar properties and you ask him what it was. And he will tell you, oh, it's not 200, it's 700 mil at least. So if you are Carl Icahn, then you pick up the phone and you call them. Um, if I want to buy this real estate from you, um, I'm, going, I'm going to send you a letter offering you 300 and it's a firm offer. Take it to the board and say, don't send it. Don't send it. We don't want it. It's an unfriendly act. You say, why? Because it's worth more. So why don't you tell it? We, we don't want to say it. And you ask your pro broker, why don't they tell it? And they'll tell you, it's a screw-up insurance. In case management screws up, they can always mortgage this property. Now, if you are just a guy working for, let's say, pension fund, a state pension fund, or a Toronto pension fund, or anybody else, what can you do? Well, you can give them a call and say, I am with the XYZ province pension fund. And it's an informal call. What would be your reaction if I told you that we were interested to buy real estate off you for 300 million? You would say, no, we, we, we are not interested. You say, but my boss is insistent. He may want me. Everything is may and want. You know, in French is better for that. The conditionnaire de plus que parfait. I mean, you, but you can do it in English too. And, and you say, don't send it because if you send it to the board, we have to formally consider it. Which, by the way, is how Golden Capital many years ago broke the underwriting business in Canada. Everybody was doing it on a best effort basis. And we, the new guys on the board, got some financing and told them, no, it's a firm offer, take it to the board. And we grew fast. So if you are with the mindset of a sleuth investor and you want to check what the 200 mil really is worth, call the best real estate broker in town and ask him or her. Don't try to become an amateur broker in two hours of study. And if, they, if you call the best lawyer in town, pay them the thousand bucks an hour fee. Carl Icahn did that when uh, Bill Ackman was short uh, Half-Life, the vitamin sales company. The Herbalife. Or... Herbalife, the, the Herbalife, the HLF symbol. And he, he didn't try to see if it's good or not. Uh, Eichmann said, no, it's a skunky business, it's terrible. And, you know, Eichmann went to the best uh, consumer product lawyers in town. He went to two of them. He paid them. And they told him, nah, it's not a nice business, but, you know, it's like the funeral business. I don't want to be in it, but it's a business. So he made a bid. And he bought a lot of shares and he registered them. So you can borrow them to short. So if you want to know about a horse race, ask the jockey. Better still, ask the horse. <laughs> you know, you have to speak horse for this. <laughs> so look, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of speaking a bit too long here. But um, the idea is that you try to do things on a physical level, do the work others will not do, and then keep your mouth shut about it and buy it or sell it and um, let's go in a bit to the challenges of, of sleuthing then um, why do you think so few investors are sleuthing stocks first of all because it the, the idea itself is fairly novel because most people who are investors see themselves as scientists i mean that's the main idea in the mind for, for them is to be a scientist sit in the office and doesn't do any work just with it with the brain power manage to buy and sell and make the internet send him checks so if you're telling me you are not really a scientist, you are street operative, this by itself is difficult. Uh, secondly, it's because it's work. You have to go and do things with people. And most investors who especially stay at home are introverts. And the third thing is that up to now, there have been no kind of fixed rules of how to do it. 
Um, so I would certainly hope that more people read my books. At a certain point, if everybody's going to do it, um, then I have to find something else. But I don't know what else can be done besides becoming a newspaper investigative reporter about companies. That's, in essence, the principle. It's sleuthing. It's, it's detective work. And I don't, because one idea I had is that, I mean, this industry seems to have attracted a lot of introverts. I mean, people that, that are good mathematically and so on. But um, it seems like the what you're proposing, then, then you need to be an extrovert, more or less. You need to be willing to go out and speak to people. Do you think that will change in the future now? As you said, I mean, Renaissance are, are eating uh, most investors' lunch that, that are just doing the... I mean, sitting at home at the desk and, and looking at the numbers. So uh, what do you think about that in the future? Good question, Nicholas. I, I think that you can be an introvert or ambivert, but you can hire extroverts. Many of the top investors hire. I mean, the, you have some people who are, who are geniuses and they hire people to plug their weak spots. Um, if, if you are good in one area, plug your weakness in another. I had, I had a friend of mine who runs a billion five on on bay street and he gives a, a maya bricks test to almost all his people because he wants a mixture of everybody on the board you both have introvert and extrovert both courageous and and, and, and fearful uh, you want to have all types but then you have to make sure they all go in the same direction so the question of how will the business develop in the future first of all uh, over the next 15 years we're going to have much more upheavals uh, the the market today is worth about I would say a quarter or a third what it's trading for today. I have no idea how high it's going to go, but the S&P is worth between 1,200 and 1,500. It's worth much, much less. And why is that? Well, the, the, first of all, if you look at the weather where the market is today, over the last 15 years, uh, more than 100% of the gains appeared overnight. If you look at the market movement during the day, it's been flat. If you only invested the market during the day, you would be down. The entire market rise happened during the night, which when you can just do magic with very little bucks. Somebody all across the globe, all the investment, all, all, all the, 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 the Federal Reserve Boards of the world have been playing with the market. So over the next 15 years, the value will return. Now, I am not... I'm not sure about anything of, of a forecast nature, but value nature, I'm slightly more convinced. There, there, something that must happen, when will they happen? I don't know. So if the market is worth substantially less and you're a value investor, if you are a principal or if you are an agent, two different behavior. I didn't want to get into that because in my proposed book, I was told by my agent, it can be offensive to the reader. Because there are people out there who act for themselves and their principles and all the others work for them and they are agents. So if you're an agent and you're running other people's money, you always have to be in the market. If you're the Norwegian pension fund or the Norwegian uh, you know, uh, fund for the, for the entire oil fortune, you cannot say I'm going 100% cash. First of all, you cannot and it's not in your mandate. You can only be 20-30% cash. Any pension fund, you always have to be in something. And if everything goes down, this, the, those who are smart enough to have gone into cash before are very few and far between. The, the incentive system in the market is not conducive to move much money around. So the, 
let me again mention something useful. There's an old market evaluation method that was the, done by a guy called Don Hayes. I like to give credit the credit is due, who was bought afterward by Wachovia. He says you have three legs to the stool. Um, one leg in the stool is uh, the, the, the public panic or euphoria. The second one is the Fed's panic or euphoria. And the third one is the market overvalued or undervalued. You only need two of those to override the third if they're at extreme. For example, if the market is very undervalued, very cheap, the Fed is panicky and printing, everybody has tons of cash, buy. That was March, February, March of, of 09. And on the other hand, in December of 2019, just before the virus came in, everybody was euphoric. The Fed was stingy, begin to be stingy and planning raise rates, and the market was in Never Neverland. So the market went down. Today, two of the stools are, I mean, the public is, has a lot of cash, a lot of cash. The Fed is scared spitless. Uh, the market is way overvalued. But because the Fed is printing and the, and the public has cash, it's more than likely the market can still go up from here until everybody is euphoric and then it may come down. But it's just a scenario. It's not a forecast. So you ask what the next 15 years, I would say that it would be very difficult to outperform and you have to be in a completely different domain of the market, like, like the 70s or the, before Volpe came in. But if you are looking for physical facts, that can always, almost always set you straight. In reality is, you know, sometimes just a punch in the nose. You can't deny it. And how are you positioning yourself in your portfolio? Well, I, over the last two years, uh, I was giving people not recommendations, but I was directing their attention to stocks that may or may not be worth sleuthing. It's really up to them. You can take a look at the portfolio. There have been like 103 before I decided I would take a break. And uh, you look at all this list, how they have done, because I also mentioned people at a certain time start thinking about maybe lightening up on the stock, if you've ever been in it. And take a look at all this and do a little little uh, comparative to what the market has done at the same time. Don't take my word for it. I mean, it's there on YouTube at the sleuthinvestor.com. And if we go into the behavioral aspects uh, of sleuthing and uh, investing, what would you say are your most common biases? The most common bias is that of inaction and trusting other people. And for myself, my bias, I, I tell up front, my bias is that I like to buy things cheap. Most investors are biased for inaction, or believing the internet, and trusting your opinion. Um, when you hire analysts, I got this from um, my son. He, he changed one of the things I was doing. When you, when you hire analysts or hire anybody else, you ask him, what do you believe strongly that goes against what all the world believes in? And you still believe that you are true. And why do you believe it is so? That's the first question. Because if you believe what everybody else does, what do I need you for? Because you are slightly better in math or on spreadsheet? What is that? On the other hand, what strong belief did you have the last year which you changed completely and why? And were you right or wrong? What did you learn from that? I mean, it's the same kind of questions that when you go into a meeting, you better not ask because it's the most productive one, but you'll be fired. For example, you can ask what all of us know in our heart of hearts to be true, but yet we have to publicly deny. Or what do we know in our heart of hearts to be false, and yet we have to publicly affirm. 
not to others, but to ourselves. What things I know to be true that I don't dare admit, go there. If you write a book, if you are a writer, that's what you want to do. You want to tell the stuff that you don't admit to yourself. You want to know secrets. That's what the reader want to read. So if you think you really love a stock or love a company, find the bears on it and listen to them. If you own a company, keep sleuthing it just to see maybe you miss something. Some of them will come and remind you of what's happening right now. And in the in the book and also in, in, in this talk, you have given a lot of examples on how to actually sleuth. And in the book, you also write about uh, sleuthing mistakes. And uh, one thing I want to ask about is um, <clears throat> the um, I mean, you, you can have all these ways on, on how to sleuth. But in the end, you need to decide what information is important and what's not. And that that's really to build up your judgment. So maybe you can can you can you describe how you how you have honed this? Is it is it mostly by doing the mistakes or how have you improved your judgment in in the sleuthing activity? I have something which every, every day I put down what if I buy, if I sell, what I buy and what I sell. And once a month and much more once a year, I, I look back and see what works for me and what doesn't work for me. It's a kind of my own AI. It's, it's And over time, I keep making the same mistakes, but uh, I make them at least on smaller positions. Because when you invest over time, you realize that when you ask good investors what's the critical item in what you do, they will tell you tranche size, the size of your position. Um, Students ask me all the time, I want to get into the investment business. What do I want to go in? And I say, well, there are are four jobs in it, which are different than the intelligent business. There is usually the the product, the other business. You have the product person, you have the client person, the money person, the top person. If you want to be the product person, the one who makes the money go up, start doing it right now. Start investing. Open an account for yourself on the Yahoo Finance with fake money. Give yourself 50 grand or 10 grand or 100 grand, whatever is realistic for you. And every day, if you want to do something, say what you buy, what you sell, how much you buy. Are you spending 25 of your 50 completely? If it goes down, it takes you years to recover. If you're only investing 1,000 bucks, all your worth, all your work have gone on a thousand dollars with a gun that come to maybe 1500 i mean there's a sweet spot in between of what's the tranche size that you begin to look at the money management side which is time management how much of your effort of sleuthing goes into what size position and then you also write at the beginning i bought it for the following three reasons if any of these change i will sell or I bought it for these three reasons and there are two or three risks. If this risk disappears, I'm going to add to position. Um, at what point do I sell? And then you realize the stock went down 30% and you sold it because you panicked. So you write to yourself, never invest in something with 30% will panic. I mean, you begin to learn by yourself by actually doing it. I mean, if you play the violin, you have to practice three hours a day the basics. The basics of money management is self-management and tranche size at determining in advance what you do, what you don't do. So it's part of the ongoing development process because you're basically a performance artist. You have to learn the basics, but you really have to know what works for you. Each one is different. Some people take a lot of punishment and some people will jump out on 5% decline. Each one is different. Now, you may find that you are best off just delegating your trading to the broker trader. 
instead of paying 10 bucks per trade, you're paying 40, but he will take it off your shoulder because it will cost you some mental energy. Up to you. Learn yourself and keep track. Actually, me and Adi discussed that for a week ago. So it's really, yeah, it was a great uh, summary of that, I think, and also about position sizing. A lot of a lot of lessons in, in those words. What, what have I missed? I mean, we're still curious about more of the behavioral aspects, or at least me. Uh, one thing is, when I read the book, I'm impressed how you are spending so much time on one case that you find interesting. You keep digging and in like for months, many months. And when you when I read it, I, I feel like, okay, now I want to punch and now I want to punch and I want to buy and I want to buy at this point. And then you say, oh, wait, I, I will wait for a little bit longer and I will get some more information before I actually do the punch. And it sounds like a lot of, I would have so much fear of missing out and doing two or three or four months of work. And then you see the sky like the, the the stock sky rocket and you you missed it all and how do you know when you know enough to actually make the decision well there's a famous new yorker cartoon there's a guy walking with a violin case in his hand and he asked somebody how do i get to carnegie hall and the answer is practice you are trying to do it with real money to begin with um practice if you have some if you have a fake portfolio for 50 grand or 100 grand, and you don't know if you should start or not, do it without commission and pick up the price of the Yahoo or of the whatever database you use. And if you want to buy something, buy something. If you lost something, you know, it's not real money. When you play the violin, you play two or three hours a day. I mean, the the, the bow has seven positions. You, 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 uh, and then you, you practice each one of them. And then when you you don't start playing Paganini from the first from the from the first go, I mean you first practice first position to second first to third and you do flageolet. You you practice the basics on dry as they say. Before you go to battle, you just practice in the shooting range. And a fake portfolio is a shooting range. And then you begin to learn what works for you, what doesn't work for you, and you keep even when you are really running real money. I mean, I have like about three real portfolios. Plus, I have five on the side are fake portfolios to test ideas. And any of these tests take sometimes one or two years to test. But time will pass anyway. Anyway, the answer to your question is: Don't do it with real money. Practice first, and then you will see what works and what what doesn't work. And even then, you will say, "I should have really done it with real money." Next time, you will, but with smaller amount. Yeah, and then the bigger size you have, the more uh, you're at risk at your own biases. That's correct. But then at a certain point, you start learning about percent, thinking percentage rather than dollars. But if you see, if after, let's say, about 10, 15 years, you begin to realize some things always work for you. For example, um, when you look, there are some indicators in the market, like extreme indicators, something called the, uh, the um, CNN fear and greed indicator. It's composed of seven sub-indicators. Right now, it's like 16, 17. At the bottom was like about five, which is like, this was the virus bottom. That's when you just buy. 16, 17 is like normal bottom. Right now, something can happen. Something can happen, and there'll be a relief rally. And it may take a month, two, three, four, five. Right now, 16, 17, you just know. It's a good time to looking at the long side. If it goes to 70, 80, it goes to 80, 85, 90, look for things to sell. At that moment, you basically want to sell all your losers because, I mean, at that moment, anything at the lost position just cleaned out. 
So there are things that in, if, if you keep track of what you do and on the side you write down why you bought by yourself. And once, once a year you take a look at this. You know, you drink your weekend coffee and you look outside and the birds are tweeting and, you know, not the, not the internet, the birds are tweeting. And you listen to it and you see that every time the, you know, the fear greed index was 17, when I bought something like seven times out of eight, it worked. Let's buy this one. And you do it this way, but you buy and it works. Next time you'll have less fear. Track it. When you go on the, when you go boxing on the ring, you can practice all the theory you want with a bag. And even a bag that goes back, it's not the same. You go on the ring and you realize you got slammed once. You can take it. So next time you dare more. I'm a bit disappointed, Avner. I thought you you're gonna say, I mean. Uh... You being a sleuthing machine yourself. I mean, maybe when your when your barber asks you what stock to buy, then you sell. Not not look at the CNN uh, fear and greed index. <laughs> not not really. Yes and no. I mean, today everybody is afraid, and they have cash. But the market is extremely expensive. It's, it's almost all that. My fault. I told you is turnarounds. I love them. They are drama. There are things everybody hates it. I'm against the world. I buy it. I'm right. They're wrong. No, no. Turnarounds are, are, are horrible because what happens if you know it's worth, it's worth 15. The stock today is three. And you buy three, it goes to two. Then it goes to one. Then it goes to 50 cents. You know, I'm a skunk. And <laughs> you, feel, you feel horrible. So what happens is you are paying with pain and loss of self-esteem. And then it goes up. It goes up to 10. It goes to 15. I sell it. I feel like a hero. And then it goes to 70. <laughs> I feel like a skunk again. So, you know, but, but you, 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 you rub the wound with money. I mean, you, you console yourself. So turnarounds are good, but it, it, it costs you, and from experience, it costs you a lot of grief. A lot of grief. So on the other hand, the best thing to find a stock like Constellation is like finding the, life, the wife for life. Constellation, I know people who put like 100 grand in, in Constellation at the, at the IPO, more than 100 grand, and they kept it. And today, it's like tens of millions and pays a dividend too. And they come to the annual meeting still not widely attended. The guy who runs it now, Mark Leonard, he's a terrific guy. Today he began to grow a long beard. He's relaxed. I know some of his people. I mean, one of his people lives right here in the condo, in the penthouse. I think the penthouse, maybe one of the other places here. So you have I, done, you have done your, you have done your sleuthing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you have to know where people live, what they do. I mean, you listen. You have to know gossip and know where not to gossip. But. This also means that if you are investing in oil, you should know who are the people around the Kremlin table, who is in the profit pool, who is not, or what happens here and there. And knowing in advance you are going to be wrong, but slightly less wrong than others. And if you are putting a position on, the, the tranche size is one that if you are wrong, and you will be wrong, and many of them will not kill you. It's like in a battle. When you fight, the trick is to fight again, to continue. To survive the night, so it, it, sleuthing is at, at, the, at the end of it. What you need the money for? And Warren Buffett said, "Don't risk money that you cannot afford to lose for money you don't really need." So, when you are close to you know the second half of your life, 
you're basically more in the capital preservation mode. So money managers like Warren Buffett and Charlie, they are doing what they should be doing. Also, many of the investors are in capital preservation. So they are, what they're doing, I mean, I don't knock them. They are in all kinds of stocks that will preserve. Market goes down X, they will go maybe slightly less X. And they also have cash, which they could buy with. Although some of the cash is for insurance, so they couldn't use all of it. So over time, it's like when you're writing books, you, you learn yourself as you go along. It's like self-recognition, self-knowledge. And also like it, what you really are, you're a performance artist. And people are watching. And how do you handle all the grief besides uh, rubbing your wounds with money? Well, you know, as the French say, money can't buy happiness, but it sure calms the nerves. <laughs> so you have enough. I'm, I'm okay. I'm semi-retired, you know. Yeah, I could always have more. I probably would have much more if I didn't write books in the meantime. If you know anybody who writes books, especially fiction, beat him over the head with a stick and tell them, don't do it. And if they still do it, you know, it's helpless. It's hopeless. They are, they are writers. But, uh, but if they, it's their passion. I managed to get out of it. It's, you know, I, still, I still write books occasionally, but uh, the market is the market. It's, it's lovely. Um, and uh, this being a book book podcast, we always ask um, uh, for what books that has uh, influenced you um, as an investor and uh, in life. Uh, and you have already mentioned a few, but can you can you name a, uh, maybe the three most influential books for for you? Well. Some have said before, maybe one or two more. Um, first of all, the uh, Richard Farley's book, Taming the Lion, he, when he took the investment department in the uh, Bank of, of uh, Australia, he told his people, what's inflation? And they quoted him, the CPI said, no, we track our own inflation. So they went and make, made a, a list of products that they use every day, and they created their own inflation index. And this helped them outperform. And the idea of sleuthing is really almost born there. Um, you, you do your own work. So this, this one helped me a lot. The Maya Briggs books, uh, the, the mother-daughter the mother uh, uh, team, they have, both of them have been non-educated by university and therefore they've been mocked by academics. But they, in, in essence, revitalize the field of practical psychology. So uh, I, would, I would read their book. Um, and, of course, the Plutarch Parallel Lives, the lives of famous Greeks and Romans. He compares a Greek general to a Roman general that had similar situation and did things differently and had to both handle different objective problems and his own character problem. And once you have a long list of those, they begin to pop up as you interview people and in companies, is this person more a Napoleon kind who who won the yes people, or is it more somebody who is uh, who let people run with their with with their own ideas, or is he running letting people run with my idea when he shouldn't, because it's a crash situation. So you have those. Um, I also like to read biographies. I mean, the one I, mean, I think I mentioned in the in the answers before was um, Admiral Nelson, who was an agent in life. His last words, I did my duty. He's an, he was an agent. And Duke Wellington was an agent. And yet both of them got together, one in the sea and one on land, to finish off a very bad principal, who was a robber, 
and uh, rapists, not himself, but his soldiers were, and almost killed half the flower of the, the, the flower of the youth of Europe. So uh, the um, Admiral Nelson rejuvenated strategy by changing sea battle. I wouldn't go into it, but he, instead of going side by side, the ships fighting at each other, he went straight in, took much more risk, but went after the main admiral ship of the opponent because once they got it out of the way, the battle was won. But he took a risk and he died in the battle. So he taught the principle of focus. And I think in almost all of it, especially life, the idea of strategy is very simple. You declare in advance what your aim is and you commit to it publicly so there's no going back. And then you decide what serves it and what doesn't. And you strip away all the other things that don't really serve your strategy. Ruthlessly. It's this part that most people cannot do, the giving up part. And once you do that, you do all in, you go all in, the rest is tactics. And then you win. Fantastic advice. And you also told us about the sequel for the Sleuth Investor. What, what more can you say about this book? Well, it's, it's called the... Uh, the advanced sleuth investor. Beautiful. And it, it, it focuses on the idea, not idea, it, it was proven that symbols, what Einstein called formalism, cannot contain all the information. That reductionism stops working. Reductionism means that big things are composed of small things. Or Plato's cave, which was two, like, two three thousand years ago, you have scientists sitting in the cave and they don't see the outside wall. They only see shadows on the cave wall. And the question is, how much of the real battle outside of the universe or of the market can you see by the blips on the cave wall? And the answer is you can't see much. Uh, David Hilbert said all of it. And more and more you realize that part of it you cannot see, but you can get some glimpse of it if you go and do things physically on the physical level. And in in physics today, they begin to realize that even though the uh, Schrodinger's equation cannot give you everything, it's not because there are some hidden variables we are not smart enough to know. Some parts of physics cannot be described in mathematics, but you can know it privately if you go and ask and look at the physical element before it became a symbol. And it's, it's a concept that's that physicists and mathematicians and scientists and intellectuals cannot accept because they spend all their life learning about life from a book or from books. And they have degrees and they have PhDs and docents, whatever not. But then you have a guy like General Vernon Walters who goes outside and talks to thieves and hookers and pimps and barbers and they tell him that they feel in the fingertips something is coming. The trick is, when do you trust the sense in your fingertips? If you do a lot of sleuthing at a certain point, you just know. You just feel it. And, but you still can be, be wrong. At which point the risk, uh, the risk response has to be, the, the, the risk measurement has to be correct. So even if you're really right, I mean, Cromwell told the king, I mean, uh, thank you. You know, my God, maybe you are wrong. The king said, I'm not wrong. They took his head off. He was sure. But so with all the work you are doing, you can still be wrong. But if you do a lot of wrong, a lot of work, you can be wrong less than the others. You you outrun the bear by outrunning the other people who escape it. Really looking forward to read your uh, next book. And when can we expect it to be published approximately? 
I hope within a year, um, maybe a year and a half, hopefully sooner, because after giving this talk and after giving some lectures in McMaster, I think I'm honing the idea much faster than the previous one. Oh, that's really good. I, I was going to say that sorry that we took so much time from you, and uh, but then maybe maybe it was good. Uh, so thank you so much, Avner, for a very insightful conversation about uh, about your book, The Sleuth Investor. Um, do you have something more you want to add before we finish up? Practice before you go real, and take a look. I have like a hundred and something uh, clips, not none of them more than ten minutes long, on my YouTube channel, The Sleuth Investor. Go from the beginning and see what catches your fancy because a lot of the thing I said here, I'm saying more simply there. You can take a look at that and uh, whatever you like. And if you like my book, my existing book, The Sleuth Investor, give it a good review on Amazon and tell all your friends so they buy one. The poor ones can go to the library too. But if you have some money, go and buy a real book. It's, much, it's very much worth it. And where can people follow you? Are you active on social media? I'm, I'm also on Twitter, but I'm usually very quiet unless I have a new, uh, a new clip on my YouTube channel. I took a break because most people don't really want to learn. They just want to have tips. And uh, over, my guess over the next six months, if the starting pool is going to go to five and a half thousand, like 5,500 on the wave of euphoria, and everybody is going to be convinced that you know, Nirvana is here, I may come back, maybe even before that, I may come back with some, some new clips. But once this thing is, is, uh, uh, is finished, I may even put this on my, uh, on my YouTube channel and also on the same on Twitter. Perfect. Thank you so much, Avner. Anytime. Thank you for taking the interest. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve... We'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.